0: West of Arkham, the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentler slopes, there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges but these are all vacant now. The wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low, gambrel roofs. The old folk have gone away and foreigners do not like to live there. French Canadians have tried it, Italians have tried it, and the Poles have come and departed. It is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled, but because of something that is imagined. The place is not good for the imagination and does not bring restful dreams at night. It must be this which keeps the foreigners away, for old Ammy Pierce has never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Ammy, whose head has been a little queer for years, is the only one who still remains or whoever talks of the strange days. And he dares to do this because his house is so near the open fields and the traveled roads around Arkham. That is, of course, referring to Arkham,
1: Massachusetts, a location founded in the mind of author H.P. Lovecraft Mm. and subsequently visited in the imaginations of many others, including myself, Chad Pfeiffer.
2: As well as myself, Chris Lackey.
1: And luckily, we've got an archaeologist with us to explore Arkham today, Paul McLean.
2: Hello, nice to be on the
3: show. Thanks for inviting me. thanks for
2: coming, Paul. Now, some of you might know Paul. Paul was on a previous episode of ours as a reader. The Lurking Fear. The Lurking Fear. But... You probably know Paul from his own podcast from yogshatha.com. It's Yog Radio. Yog Radio. Yeah, it's just
3: Yog Radio. We not... just call it Yog Radio. Yeah, Y O G. Well,
1: that's an excellent show. It's about it's uh, show. what the the Call of Cthulhu, role playing game, and and uh, other things in the gaming world for Lovecraft.
3: Yeah. It
2: focuses mostly on that, but you you've had some great literary scholars on that show.
3: We've been very fortunate. We've had uh, people like S. T. Joshi been on the show. Yeah, we've mm-hmm. interviewed ooh, people like uh, Brian Lumley. We've actually managed to get him on. Yeah. The oh, no awesome. kidding, really? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, that, that took two years to sort it out. So some of the interviews take a while to arrange. So we've got a few. Yeah, but
2: it's there. a it's a great show. Even if you're not a, a necessarily fan of the role playing game, there's often little tidbits that people that love Lovecraft can from get out of there.
1: Yeah, we'll put a link up to the show, and and uh, if you guys uh, want to hear some more great Lovecrafty in uh, podcasting, definitely check it out. This is, of course, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
2: Oh, at hppodcraft.com.
1: That's right. And uh, we're available on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, the Zoom Marketplace. We're everywhere. Any, anywhere you can listen to a podcast, we are. And I just want to say this before we move on. Last show that we posted, we got too much traffic and the site went yeah, down.
2: We crashed. That's awesome. I mean, it's terrible,
1: yeah. but it's it's great. The great thing was that we had our site designer and our webmaster available, Mike J. Mann, there to save us from uh, disaster. He fixed everything up immediately and had us running again very yeah. quickly.
2: We don't, we don't give him enough props. Mike, I, I love you.
1: We're actually going to have him on the show in a few weeks, I believe, when we cover the thing in the moonlight. He's yeah, going to guest host he's with
2: gonna us. guest host with us.
1: So that'll be cool. But in the meantime, you can actually buy a shirt with our show logo on it, which he designed yeah. over at uh, cafepress.com slash HP Probably later we'll, we'll make some more shirts on our own, but we wanted to get those up there. If you uh, want to give Mike some props, go over there and buy the shirt. They're yeah. in all sorts of styles and colors, and there's even some, I don't know, There's a throw pillow and, uh, you know, everything the Cafe Press has to offer has got our logo on it.
2: I'm planning on burning all of my old T-shirts and just buying these. Me
3: too.
1: (laughs) Excellent. The the opening reading there, you may have also noticed the familiar voice of Andrew Lehman. Yes, he's back. I actually, yesterday, uh, went with him to go see an art exhibition out uh, in alhambra california dedicated to hp lovecraft oh wow how was that it was uh really good it was at the gallery nucleus i can actually now that was unfortunately the last weekend of the show oh, yeah geez. it's been running for a month or so but um they uh have a nice website so i'll put up the link to the exhibition yeah on our show notes and from there you can actually see all the pieces and if you like some of them you can even buy prints. yeah i've seen
2: some of them they're really pro i mean it's yeah well
1: the artists some of them are hollywood production designers who just Ah. love lovecraft some of them there was even a couple of pieces from a fellow who's working on guillermo del toro's mountains of madness adaptation uh and then there were also student pieces and uh some some younger artists from all over the country and uh i think even all over the world contributed stuff so there's paintings there's uh sculptures all sorts of great stuff we'll put the link up and and hopefully uh you know people will enjoy that art yeah great
2: Let's jump into the story. let's get let's go swimming in the color out of space.
1: in those opening paragraphs of the color out of space, we get a setting, the hilly farmlands west of Arkham, and uh, we meet a man, Ami Pierce.
2: Ami, yeah, now Ami, you may, may or may not know this is uh one of the names of Lot's daughter's sons, which is also his son in the the biblical lot, if you know, right with well, lot yeah, got it
1: on with his daughter. Well, they got it on with him. he
2: got him drunk and you know because they needed to have kids i don't know why that was it's the (laughs) bible you know incest it happens but um Robert M. Price, I don't know if, if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a, uh, a biblical antecedent for The Color Out of Space, which just sort of compares The Color Out of Space to the story of Lot and all the things that uh, happened with him. To
1: me, this story feels more—I'm not a biblical scholar. I actually don't even really know what the story of Lot is too well. Maybe as we go on, you can explain I that would, a little bit. But yeah. this reminds me more of the story of Job, because wasn't it Job that just got punished over and over yes. and over by God? Yep. to test his faith. Yeah. I mean, the family in this story just oh, gets...
2: Oh, man. They, oh, it's so... This story is so sad and so scary. and Oh, it's so good. I, well, let's just... Let's get into it. Let's get okay. into the story. <laughs>
1: well, Ami is the only fellow who lives out in this part of the country now, and he knows a lot about what happened and what the story's going to be about. But our main character, the unnamed protagonist, is surveyor. a surveyor. Yeah. Yeah, and he's out here to uh, construct a reservoir, right? Yeah,
2: that's right. Uh, it's this uh, the valley that's going to be You know, turned into a reservoir for Arkham. And now Lovecraft, actually, there was uh, an area, the Swift River Valley, which got turned into a reservoir also. Um, Mm -hmm. He wrote in a letter in 1935, the trip through the doomed Swift River Valley must have held more than a slight touch of melancholy. I went through it eight years ago, not long after its doom was first pronounced, and well nigh groaned at the future destruction of exquisite old villages like Dana and its neighbors. So, ah, so what so what's going on. Yeah, this happened in 26. As lovecraft was writing the story this was happening so i'm sure this definitely kind of fueled the location for it
1: sure well he was obviously sad to see some of those old towns get covered up by water now the people in arkham aren't necessarily too upset that this place is about to get flooded no
0: (laughs) sir (laughs) in in, uh, the protagonist says when i went into the hills and vales to survey for the new reservoir they told me the place was evil they told me this in arkham and because that is a very old town full of witch-legends, I thought the evil must be something which Grandams had whispered to children through centuries. The name Blasted Heath seemed to me very odd and theatrical, and I wondered how it had come into the folklore of a Puritan people. Then I saw that dark westward tangle of glens and slopes for myself, and ceased to wonder at anything besides its own elder mystery. It was morning when I saw it, but shadow lurked always there. The trees grew too thickly, and their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. There was too much silence in the dim alleys between them, and the floor was too soft with the dank moss and mattings of infinite years of decay. The blasted heath.
1: Yeah. Blasted That's a heath. crucial part of the story. Now, what, what's a heath?
0: Ooh, I know that one.
3: Oh, you do? Ah, I do. It's actually a dwarf shrub habitat found mainly in infertile, acidic soils. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> he says, reading off the Wikipedia page. But I didn't know what it was. It's, um, we, we have a few of them. It's it's kind of like, uh, it's like, like a moor. It's like a moorland area. Yeah. They're kind of mixed together. But I always think it was kind of a high area of kind of low shrubland. Yeah, that kind of thing. Quite okay. desolate.
2: Yeah. But uh, yeah. you know, blasted heath is actually the name of my new Lovecraftian speed metal band. Fantastic no way! Band. Yeah, <laughs> we shred, dude. I got to tell you.
1: Blasted he
2: Yeah, it's great. It's Can you good get stuff. that on iTunes? You cannot yet get that on iTunes. Hey, you,
1: you remember that, that metal band called Hate Beak? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, a, it's an awesome metal band, and their lead singer is a bird. What? <laughs> yeah, they have like a pair. I, I'll have to look it up again. It's been a while since I looked, but I know that their lead singer is a bird, so they just rock out, and the bird goes like,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's... Wait, is it a, actually a bird, or it's a man dressed up as a bird? Oh, no, it's a real bird is their lead singer. Like a parrot? Yeah, I think it's a parrot or one of these, you know, birds that, well, I don't oh, know. Yeah, we'll look what, that up, put that on the show notes. This is okay. awesome. <laughs> yeah, hate beak. <laughs> Check them out. Hate um, Now, the term blasted <laughs> heath uh, actually comes from Macbeth.
2: Yes, yes it
0: does. After the witches predict that Macbeth will be king, he says, Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, so why, upon this blasted heath, you stop our way with such prophetic greeting? Speak, I charge you. <laughs> That's where he pulled it from. In fact, Lovecraft even mentions later in the text he
1: says it's as if the poet coined the phrase from having seen this one particular region so the poet referring yeah. to So the this place, the
2: Blasted Heath, really epi- epitomizes that.
1: That's right. He compares it to a landscape by Salvatore Rosa. Oh, yeah, good old Salvatore. Uh, what, you guys know anything about?
2: Yeah, he was uh, an Italian painter, died in 1673, and he had wild, desolate landscapes. You know, that was kind of his thing.
1: Right. We'll put up a link to some images. I, I think he was a satirist, a playwright, and all these other things, but his landscapes are what really stuck with people because they look so haunted, and yeah. they're, they're uh, so different from the pastoral landscapes of the period. Right, right. As the surveyor says, when he finally sees the blasted, heath, he doesn't wonder that folks are leery of it. In fact, he thinks it must be the outcome of some fire or something like that, because it's just totally, there's no vegetation.
2: No, it's just kind of a fine gray dust that's all over everything.
1: It's about five acres, which I think is like a little bigger than a football field, maybe. Yeah. And he wouldn't even have have approached this area, the surveyor, if it wasn't for his job. But it looks like it's been eaten by acid and there's this, like you say, like a fine gray dust or ash everywhere. But the wind doesn't seem to disturb
0: it or kick it up.
2: No, no. And and it's pretty much contained to this one area, but it's sort of encroaching
0: over this road. Right. There's a great couple of sentences. At twilight, dreading to repass that ominous spot, I walked circuitously back to the town by the curving road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather an odd timidity about the deep sky voids above that crept into my soul. Now, this story is
1: awesome, and I love it. Mm-hmm. And I there's not much to make fun of, but right there, that's a gem. The sky <laughs> voids. To describe the sky, he's using the name of the object to describe it. Like, that's like saying, I, you know, I went to the bathroom and, and relieved myself into the toilety bowl. You know, I mean, it, it's sky void. It is the sky.
2: Exactly. Well, you and know.
1: I found that really funny. Okay, well, at, at that night in Arkham, after he notices the blasted heath, the fella starts asking people about it. Yeah, and, and they go, oh, that's back in the strange days. Right, people keep saying, we're not going to tell you anything, but especially don't listen to crazy old Ami Pierce, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first thing he does. He goes out to see Ami. Ami lives out at the edge of the woods in this old house, and he goes out there to see him. The survey knocks, eventually he comes to the door, and he's this old man with a white beard. He's kind of worn out and dismal, but after some small talk, our protagonist finds out he's actually quite bright. Mm -hmm. And um, he's different from other old men he's dealt with when he's been flooding areas before or surveying to do such. And then Ami seems kind of relieved that it's going to happen.
0: Relief was all that he showed. Relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys through which he had roamed all his life. They were better underwater now. Better underwater since the strange days. And with this opening, his husky voice sank low. While his body leaned forward and his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively, We're about to get the story of what happened on that strange day. This is the story.
2: It's not yeah, just the yeah. framing of the story. But well, actually, we don't quite get it yet. He says, "Oh, okay, Ami told me the story, and it, it freaked me out and upset me." And yeah, I'm, I'm never going to come back here. I'm never going to drink the water. Never going
3: to drink the water of from Arkham. Yes. Don't buy Arkham water.
1: Yeah, he goes to Boston the next day and he resigns his job after he hears the story of. (laughs) It's a good point, though. You know, most bottled water does come from a municipal source somewhere. Yeah. So check your bottled water because it could be coming from Arkham Springs. After we get that little piece of knowledge, then
0: um, Ami does launch into the story. It all began, old Ami said, with the meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials. And even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as the small island in the Miskatonic, where the devil held court beside a curious stone altar older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusk was never terrible till the strange days. Then there had come that white noontide cloud that string of explosions in the air and that pillar of smoke from the valley far in the wood. And by night, all Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky and bedded itself in the ground beside the well at the Nahum Gardner place. That was the house which had stood where the blasted heath was to come, the trim, white Nahum Gardner house amidst its fertile gardens and orchards. Our third character that we met in, in that paragraph, and, and the person
1: who's sort of the Lot or the Job character in here, is Nahum Gardner. And I think Nahum has a, an Old Testament
3: origin
2: of that name. Or Nam? right? I, don't know. I
1: said Nahum.
3: N-A-H-U-M. H-U-M? Yeah, because it's an anagram of human.
2: What?
1: Oh, look at
3: that. It well, is. Nahum yeah. is
2: also, I didn't realize that, but Nahum is also uh, an Old Testament name. N- Nahum right. the Eclioshite.
1: Yeah. He's a prophet of yeah. some sort. He's a minor prophet. Oh, that, that's cool! You know, it's that's uh, very clever that his first name is an anagram of human, and then his last name is Gardner, since so much is related to the vegetation that comes up out of the
2: ground. Oh, look at that!
1: Well, Nam goes to after this happens. Nam goes to town to tell people about this stone, this meteorite that dropped off in his property, and he stops at Ami's house. Mm-hmm. Now, Ami, at the time of the story in the eighties, is about forty years old, and I think Nam's about in his fifties or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ami goes back to the farm with. His wife yeah. and uh, three professors come down from Miskatana because obviously they, everybody saw this thing land or yeah. saw it shooting through the sky, so they're they're very interested.
2: And they want they want to check it out. Well, so first of all, he said that when they get there, he goes, you know, this meteorite shrunk. It was seven feet across, now it's only five feet across. And yeah, uh, they're they're going whatever, you know, like, you, it, a meteorite <laughs> won't shrink. That doesn't make any sense. So they yeah. just kind of play it off, and then they start poking it around, and it's yeah. sort of metallic like, more like plastic. They say it's got the consistency of plastic. And uh, you know, they take an old pail, and they they kind of gouge out a chunk of it and put it in this pail and run off with it. But it it starts burning or eating through the pail.
1: Yeah, and it, as even as they're carrying it away, that sliver begins to grow smaller.
2: Yeah, yeah, the, it's shrinking, like something is going on with it.
1: Now, they get it to the lab, and they start doing tests on it. Um, it doesn't exhibit any earthly qualities, this sliver. It, it won't cool ever, and... Um, in experiments, it just doesn't do anything it normally should. Yeah. When they uh, when they heat it further, however, it displays this kind of band of colors, mm-hmm. which aren't in the normal spectrum.
2: With a he's wow. checking it out. Now, this section of the story is <laughs> is really uh, chemi- chemi- chemically
3: based. Oh yes. There's a good yeah. few paragraphs in here. Well, I mean, Lovecraft himself was uh, loved chemistry after astronomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think he did up to about uh, 1916, mid-20s, he decided to uh, move over into chemistry. So he had, I think he was indulged by his grandfather Whipple with chemistry sets and things like this. So don't be surprised if you see lots more chemistry appearing in Lovecraft stories later on.
2: And I have a quote here, actually, from one of the letters here. He talks about he had his own own spectroscopic analysis kit when he was a kid.
3: That's pretty advanced. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) so here, hold on. I, I got a quote for you.
2: One phase of chemistry in which I dabbled was spectrum analysis, and I still have my spectroscope. A rather low-priced diffraction instrument costing $15. Wow, that's expensive. That's Mm. actually pretty expensive. For back then. I have also a still cheaper pocket spectroscope, which was the delight of my fellow students at HSH, uh, which is Hope Street High School. It's unbelievably tiny. will go into the best pocket without making much of a bulge.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know you could get them that small. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, so there you go. The professors come back after testing that sliver, and they go back out to the farm, and they they, now they see that the meteorite has shrunk since the last time they saw it. Yeah. And so they gouge deeper into
0: it to take another sample, and they uncover the core of it. Yeah, he, like, pokes, he, like, jabs right into it. They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large, colored globule embedded in the substance. The color, which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum... almost impossible to describe and was only by analogy that they called it color at all its texture was glossy and upon tapping it appeared to promise both brittleness and hollowness one of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer and it burst with a nervous little pop nothing was emitted and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing it left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across and all thought it probable that others would be discovered as the enclosing substance wasted away.
1: Ugh. So. It's weird. Uh, so, do you think that tapping it with a hammer was a bad thing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they're scientists. I
2: mean, that's what they do. They poke things, you know? Yeah. You know, but I mean, well, this really sticks in with Lovecraft's universal concept. We have to be careful because as we explore and uncover things we're going to start exploring and uncovering things that are are bad and that we don't ever really want to uncover mm, you know sure. and i think this is this specific part of the story is sort of just showing that you know these men of science you know braving into this unknown area and it's gonna you know bite them in the ass
1: i know that lovecraft wasn't a big fan of other science fiction stories of his time because you know, the aliens were so uh human and they yeah. had uh, human desires and even human physiology where here the visitor you can't even conceive of what the heck this thing is. It's not even a corporeal body and its intentions are completely a mystery. Yeah. And I don't when I, I asked that because maybe it was a bad thing when they hit it with hammer, maybe it wasn't. It's hard to know.
2: Maybe yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe it slowed down the whole thing. Maybe if, if they didn't hit it, it would have it would have killed everybody there in an instant, you know? It's
1: hard to know. Well they drill a little into the meteor looking for more globules, but they don't find any. They take the new sample back to the lab, but it still won't do anything natural, and the professors finally conclude it's just the same thing we have, right? It's just something unknowable from the great cosmos. Yeah. They don't get a chance for more investigation because the next night there's a storm.
3: That's right, well, it's like a lightning magnet. gets hit quite a bit and uh, there's nothing left by the morning. Yeah, it got away. hit it's by just, lightning six times. Yeah, that's right. Just absorbed it all, bam,
2: there's nothing left, gone.
1: Crazy. Yeah, and the researchers only have a week before their sample disappears as well, so eventually it's just all gone.
2: Will Murray speculated that Lovecraft got that whole lightning hitting of a thing many times. From Charles Fort, who mm. had an account of these things called Thunderstones, mm. which are these supposed rocks that would attract lightning and
1: stuff like that.
3: So, uh, just...
1: <laughs> By the way, Thunderstones is the first track on the Blasted Heat. Uh, <laughs>
3: oh, fantastic. <laughs> Sign me up for
0: that.
1: The local press gets wind of the meteor and all this. We learn when they talk about that, that he's married. Well, we knew he was married, but he has three sons. Yes. And uh, by all accounts, he's a good guy, very genial. <laughs> he even seems kind of proud that the meteorite landed Wait, on Wait, does he
2: house. have two sons and a daughter?
1: No, he's got three, three sons. sons.
2: Three sons, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, Never mind. Yeah. I guess one of the names sounded kind of sissy to me.
1: Well, yeah. One of the sons thinks he was born a woman, but uh, <laughs> physically, he's, he's a man. <laughs> he's a man.
2: Yeah. very He's a boy. Family. Right. Yeah, Merwin. Absolutely. That's the name. Merwin. I yeah, think Merwin. the girl's name. I'm sorry. My mistake.
1: Things start subtly from this point. It's a hot summer, and through July and August, Naam works hard at hanging his pasture. Uh, uh, the only thing he has at this point is he complains of feeling a little more tired than usual. Yeah.
2: But what happened? I mean, during the uh, during the, the harvest time, the, there's right. great big fruit, and it and it's beautiful, and it looks great. You know, it's like yes, I'm scoring big time. But when... yeah,
1: the apples and pears are huge. Yeah, apples and pears. Isn't that slang for up the stairs? It absolutely Cockney is. Slang? That's
3: Cockney rhyming slang. Up the apples and pears for the stairs. You're right. Probably tasted the America. Same. You are. Yeah, he got it
1: wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, these
3: probably tasted the same as uh, carpet stairs as well. I must admit, because that's one of the things they say is that. Beautiful, lush looking vegetation and fruit. But you bite into it, not going to be happy with the results. No, everybody hated this stuff. A, a horrible.
2: It was terrible fruit. And he just realized oh, wait, all this awesome stuff that's happening right now is the exact opposite of awesome. It is.
3: <laughs> yeah that right. goes all the, <laughs> the agricultural prizes sorry not this year
1: yeah somehow the meteorite poisoned the soil yeah. and um that sucks for them obviously because that's their whole that's yeah, their the job that's you know, yeah. their farmers so they, they have a really bad harvest and when winter comes Ami doesn't see Nahum and the family too often they're not showing up at church events really and um, when he does talk to them they admit to feeling kind of depressed and disquieted and uh, they say that certain
0: things on his land are bothering him. Hmm. Nahum himself gave the most definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white rabbits, and foxes, but the brooding farmer professed to see something not quite right about their nature and arrangement. He was never specific, but appeared to think that they were not as characteristic of the anatomy and habits of squirrels and rabbits and foxes as they ought to be. Amy listened without interest to this talk until one night when he drove past Naam's house in his sleigh on the way back from Clark's Corners. There had been a moon and a rabbit had run across the road and the leaps of that rabbit were longer than either Amy or his horse liked.
2: The creepy mm. creepy rabbit. Don't want to meet that rabbit at night. No, it's kind of like Bugs Bunny when he dresses up like a lady. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's unnatural. It's
2: unnatural, exactly.
1: There's another uh, a great uh, little note there, too. The McGregor boys from Meadow Hill, they shoot a woodchuck out by name's farm, but they oh, don't right. like the proportions of its body or face. It says uh, its face had taken on an expression which no one ever saw in a yeah. woodchuck before.
3: <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> weird. Is a woodchuck a bird? Because we don't have woodchucks. No, groundhogs. A, a grand, oh, right. Yeah. We yeah. don't have groundhogs. Well, like no. Groundhog Day, like... Um, large beavery yeah they're creatures? kind of like yeah. beavers
2: but without tails well i mean they have little tails but they're not flat tails and they have
1: a range of expressions sometimes there's a happy woodchuck a yeah. sad woodchuck yeah. i've seen but know, this one is some woodchucks look presidential even but this woodchuck the expression on its face yeah indescribable
2: exactly. you can't yeah don't right. don't even go there
1: <laughs> so and people in town they're chin wagging about this you know they say the snow melts faster around nams and uh yeah. they over at potter's general store they start talking about those skunk cabbages that come up,
2: right? And this now skunk cabbage, just for the record, is kind of—it's a stemless, leafy plant that actually smells bad. Hence, okay. hence why it's called skunk cabbage. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, so it wasn't good to begin met- with.
2: No, no. It's naturally occurring in New England. Mm. However, mm. this skunk cabbage uh, has an unnatural hue to it.
1: Yeah, colors that don't make any sense, right?
2: People haven't seen this color, you know, before except mm. in the meteorite. That's the last right. I've been yeah.
1: That was a hard one for me, too, and it probably, you know, rightly so, to imagine cabbages with an unearthly hue.
2: Or just, you, know? <laughs> you can't help but you, you try and think of an, a new color. Like, you just can't do it. You know what I mean? like right. Your brain tries to, uh, you know, is works at it, but it doesn't happen. It, you
1: can't. The trees uh, around
0: there are strange as well. The trees budded prematurely around Naams, and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nahum's second son, Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there was no wind, but even the gossips would not credit this. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardner family developed the habit of stealthy listening, though not for any sound which they could consciously name. The listening was, indeed, rather a product of moments when consciousness seemed half to slip away. Unfortunately, such moments increased week by week till it became common speech that something was wrong with all names, folks. A side note that I, I
2: meant to bring up earlier when we first talked talk about bring it, up, color bring it up. was that Lovecraft wasn't the first person to have this idea of this unknowable spectrum color thing. Ambrose Bierce in The Damned Thing talked about, and I'll, I'll give it right here. Is that a story? It is a story, mm. The Damned Thing. Yeah, it was written in 1893. And Lovecraft have, has obviously read it. But he says, he's talking about this creature, this monster. Uh, the human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. There are colors we cannot see. And God help me, that damn thing is such color. I was, that's what he says <laughs> in, in the story. But so Lovecraft obviously, you know, that sort of inspired him. And that's what's so great about this story. It's not a monster. And it's its not a disease. It's like—it's this re- really other alien strange thing
1: it's so yeah. cool it's so good and from beyond when the machine comes on i believe that uh, the narrator in there begins to see some colors that are outside of the normal spectrum as right. well so it is it is uh, uh, conceptually it's something that uh, he's visited before in the spring people all stop using the road by naam's farm because the vegetation is so crazy looking and odd colored naam he leaves the soil around his house as is hoping it kind of draws all the poison from the meteorite out and he yeah farms the, up the hill. Away
2: from yeah. from the area. Because he has more land than just where, where the meteor is affected.
1: When the insects come in May, <gasps> it, gets, yeah, it gets all crazy.
2: Of course, it's again it says their aspects in motion are unlike any other. They're, they're unnatural. Something's wrong with these bugs and probably has something to do with the meteorite. Or at yeah, least that's what and everybody's the, saying.
1: The family, they're just sort of watching every night in different directions for something. They don't even know what. Although they, uh, they all do see the swollen maple trees swaying at night even though there's no wind.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: and a, a windmill salesman from Bolton drives by one night and notices that the whole farm seems to have a sort of luminosity about it. A, a windmill, windmill salesman? salesman?
2: <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> How does he get those from house
3: to house when he knocks on the His door? His display isn't... case is huge. <laughs> <laughs> what career advice did he get? <laughs>
1: Near the end of May, the cow's milk goes bad as well. Yeah. All of the gardeners seem to be failing physically and mentally a bit. Only Ami really notices this because he's the only one who'll come around and see them.
2: Right. Ami's wife used to go over and visit with Nam's wife all the time, but they just kind of stopped seeing
0: each other. In June, unfortunately, Nam's wife goes mad. Yeah, It happened in June, about the anniversary of the meteor's fall, and the poor woman screamed about things in the air which she could not describe. In her raving, there was not a single specific noun, but only verbs and Pronouns. Things moved and changed and fluttered, and ears tingled to impulses which were not holy sounds. Something was taken away. She was being drained of something. Something was fastening itself on her that ought not to be. Some, someone must make it keep off. Nothing was ever still in the night. The walls and windows shifted. Mayhem did not send her to the county asylum, but let her wander about the house as long as she was harmless to herself and others. Even when her expression changed, he did nothing. But when the boys grew afraid of her, and Thaddeus nearly fainted at the way she made faces at him, he decided to keep her locked in the attic. By July, she had ceased to speak and crawled on all fours, and before that month was over, Nahum got the mad notion that she was slightly luminous in the dark, as he now clearly saw was the case with the nearby vegetation.
1: It's that great staple of literature locking the crazy wife in the attic.
0: It may have been that Lovecraft
3: was thinking of Charlotte Perkins' Gilman's celebrated tale, The Yellow Wallpaper, from about the 1890s. Which, yeah, uh, right. yeah, notes, uh, I think it was in reference to the supernatural horror in literature, rises to a classic level and subtly delineating the madness which crawls over a woman dwelling in the hideously papered room where a mad woman was once confined. So that does that sound familiar? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I, so, I mean, that. it sounds
2: like maybe he borrowed it a little bit, but he also
1: said. Oh, I didn't know that he'd actually commented on reading that story before. Oh yeah, because I always when I read the Yellow Wallpaper, even when you know that's a pretty big you know high school literature, a lot of uh, gets taught, and even then I remember feeling like it was sort of Lovecraftian, you know, the way the shapes and the wallpaper begin to move and how she slowly goes mad.
2: Well, he also talks about uh, in a letter Lovecraft wrote, uh, living things usually insane or idiotic members of the family. <laughs> concealed in the garrets or secret rooms of old houses are or at least have have been literal realities in rural new england i was told by someone of Mm. how he stopped at a lone farmhouse on some errand years ago and was nearly frightened out of his wits by the opening of a sliding panel in a kitchen wall and the appearance at the aperture of the most horrible dirt caked and matted bearded face he had ever conceived possible to exist oh man wow that was in a letter to bernard dwyer that lovecraft wrote but uh, you know what Lovecraft says in there? He says, I was told by someone.
1: Yeah, sure. That's his source that he <laughs> cites. It must be it's a friend <laughs> of a friend. Yeah. Well, you know, it also reminds me of Jane Eyre. Um, oh, right, yeah. uh, there's a crazy wife locked in the attic in that uh, book as well. Yeah. Who creeps about at night and scares Jane. Yeah. Last thing I'll say about that, though, too, is um, an H.P. Lovecraft encyclopedia suggests a possible closer inspiration to Lovecraft, which was his mother. Right. Who, um, oh, who? Yes. Maybe not the locked-up portion of it, but in her mental illness, reportedly claimed to see weird and fantastic creatures that rushed out from behind buildings and from corners at oh, dark. Yeah. So she was seeing things in the air too. So yeah.
2: But back to the story. I mean, things are going so badly for him and his family. And one of the things, and I, you said that this is about you know. Reminds you of Job a lot, and it mm. does because he's done nothing wrong. It's undeserved, absolutely. Undeserved. It's totally undeserved, and that's another thing that makes this even more horrible.
3: It's like bad things happen to good people. You know, it's completely, <laughs> it's completely amoralistic. There's no you know, yeah no moral function to that.
2: No,
1: the horses stampede and make for the hills. It says when they finally catch them that they're just unmanageable. Something snapped in their brains. Yeah, and they all have to be shot. <sighs> He has to actually borrow one of Ami's horses to try and get work done. Although now the vegetation that had swollen so much is now turning brittle and, and gray, like the grass has. Yeah. Even the stuff that was colorful before. Yeah. And the uh, the strangely puffed insects are all dying. And the, and the the bee. It says the bees had taken to the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so even the bees are, are out of there. All oh, right. The wife is screaming constantly up in there in the attic, and the, and the family's not yeah. going around anymore. The boys aren't even going to school, yeah. and and when Ami visits. You know, he thinks that the well water probably isn't very good. So right. maybe that well is a good place to stop for
2: Oh right, so, yeah. So. Yeah. He's because you know, maybe you should be drinking the well water. Yeah. And Nam goes, Ah, it's fine. <laughs> glug, it's glug glug glug. But this is oh, yeah. it's so good and conceptually and it's just really well written and mm-hmm. you know. It's great when you get a Lovecraft story that's a page turner and this really
3: this really is one of those. And this, this was yeah. Lovecraft's favorite story. It was. Yeah, absolutely. Because it had it's so it's so inhuman. In that aspect amoristic inhuman unknowable
1: yeah in many letters lovecraft commented on this as his uh his best tale his best story
2: yeah he says uh specifically most of my monsters fail altogether to satisfy my sense of the cosmic the abnormally chromatic entity in the color out of space being the only one of the lot which i take any pride in
1: wow yeah well that's saying a lot you know because this was a guy who was pretty hard on his own work oh. yeah I think his estimation of his own work in this case is absolutely right. It's a great story. It's a
2: really great story. And um, that is going to be it for this week. I want to thank Andrew for reading. He did a, a wonderful yes. job. And Mike Mann for bailing us out of, in our, our time of need.
1: And our guest host this uh, this and for the next uh, episode.
2: Yeah, you'll you'll join us for the next episode, yeah, Paul? Oh, yeah, that will be great. Thank absolutely. you very much. Cheers. Great. Uh, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At
3: HPPodcraft.com. HPpodcraft ah.